This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 35. We're actually going to be looking at two chapters today. Um, you'll note that chapter 36 is almost entirely a genealogy. So we won't spend as much time on it. In fact, um, I'm going to read all of chapter 35. I'm only going to read the first eight verses of chapter 36, and then I'll hit other relevant points from chapter 36 in the sermon, but we are looking at both of these chapters today. So I'll read from Genesis 35, 1 to 36, 8. Here now, the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. And make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because their God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alan Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, And he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. (laughs) Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were but a little diff, there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called his name Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. 
And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholabama the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basemoth, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebajoth. Now Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemoth bore Ruel. And Aholabama bore Jeus, Jalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, and all his animals, and all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to the country, away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. This is the word of the Lord. May you bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, pray that by your Holy Spirit you would illuminate it to us, that you would write it on our hearts, that even as we see uh, still lingering sin and separation among your people, We also see the hope of your salvation. We see that you receive and you forgive sinners. And I pray that you would write the hope of the gospel on our hearts and that by your spirit more and more, we would live lives that are pleasing to you and take your word where it has not been heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we learned in some rather difficult and disturbing ways that all was not well among the people of God. We saw that everyone involved in the episode at Shechem in chapter 34, so Dinah, Shechem, Reuben and Levi, Hamor, and of course Jacob himself, everyone made gross errors in moral judgments and in actions, and it produced disastrous consequences. Dinah had been defiled, all the men of the Shechemites were dead, and the rest of the city was captured and enslaved. The name of God had been blasphemed among the sons of Jacob, and they had blood on their hands for their treachery and murder. And all Jacob could really muster was to complain about the trouble that it caused him at the end. 
Now let us recall that Jacob's family is essentially the last visible expression of the city of God, the people of God on the earth. They are the church. They are the worshipers of God that existed in that day, the only one that we know of. And they were a disaster. They were in utter chaos and crisis and disarray. Now, there is nothing that human intervention could do to make things right again, all of these various sins and sorrows and problems that had arisen. And yet the mercy and grace of God remains upon his deeply flawed and sinful and suffering people. See, God is faithful to his chosen people. He saves sinners. He, re- he forgives and redeems sinners even from their darkest days and darkest places and darkest deeds. Although as we look at our text today, we also see that this is not true of everyone. There remains a distinction between those who are God's people and those who are not. We see today the final major division in Genesis between the city of God and the city of man. The final major breaking off of one who is of the descendants of the people of God and yet is not truly a part of them, is not spiritually alive, who will dwell and grow into a nation, but is estranged from the household of faith. So this tells us that God saves sinners, but he saves sinners according to his sovereign will and election and purposes, leaving some in their sin and rebellion. So we will look at this text today in three points. First, we see deliverance in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 35. After the great sins and sorrows at Shechem, Jacob's family is finally brought back to Bethel, the place where Jacob had first met God, the place he named the house of God, the place where their covenants had been ratified. And second, we see departures in verses 16 through 29. We see departures in the form of a couple of deaths, one that is premature and tragic, and then another who is of one of the faithful who is old and full of years. Then we also see yet another great moral departure, another great sin in the house of Jacob. And then third and finally, we see a division in chapter 36. We see the house of Esau, them being a part of the city of man, broken off and separated from the city of God. And this to prepare us for the final developments, the final narrative in the book of Genesis. So first we look at deliverance in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 35. So we have seen the horror at Shechem of chapter 34. We saw how much evil and disarray and immorality has now taken root in the family of God. So what should God do about this? Well, if God dealt with his people according to what they deserved, they would be struck down, they would be removed, they would be destroyed off the face of the earth. That is what would happen if God dealt with his people according to a covenant of works, a covenant of life and blessedness based on the people's righteousness and obedience. But that is not how God dealt with his people since Adam's fall into sin. 
No, God now deals with His people according to a covenant of grace. Though they are sinners, though in many ways they have gross sins, great evils among them, God comes to them. He condescends to them. He communes and fellowships with them and forgives them in their sin and weakness. And that is what God does again here. He comes to Jacob and tells him to arise and go to Bethel. Not only to go there, but to stay there, to live there, to dwell there, and to worship God there. Jacob is told that he is to go there and make an altar. Make an altar in that same place to the same God that he met with when he fled from Esau and journeyed toward the east. Now Jacob purposes to do this, but there are other matters that must be dealt with first. Seems that amid all these other sins and failures that we have seen in the house of God, there is also idolatry. We saw one specific example of this before. When Jacob and his family were fleeing from Laban, Rachel stole Laban's household gods, something she had no business doing. There was no good reason to take them. She even deceived Laban to keep them. Jacob's declaration here reveals that this was not an isolated act. There seems to be widespread and prevalent idolatry in his household. Not only had it been going on, but the fact that Jacob brings it up here means that he knew about it. And yet it seems in his characteristic way, though there were all these problems in his family, he wasn't interested in doing anything about it until he had to. But now that it is time to return to the worship of God, the idols must be put away. Now this is a frequent problem in the history of God's people. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the history of Israel, there are periods where the people by and large turn aside from God and worship idols. Never entirely, never completely, God always preserves a remnant of his people, but idolatry always still seems to linger nearby, and many among God's people are drawn to the worship of idols. And even many of the efforts recorded in Scripture to get rid of idolatry fall short. You read, for instance, in the accounts of the kings, there are good kings who serve God, but then you'll see notes about things like how they don't tear down the high places. They don't destroy the places of idolatrous worship. They bring about reform and some return to the worship of God, but there are only half measures. But this is not specifically an Old Covenant problem or an Old Testament problem. As God's people, even now, we are constantly tempted by idols. Maybe they're not explicitly false gods, false images of wood and stone, but there's always the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil to seek to turn us aside from our faith, to turn us aside from God's word and God's worship. Now, Jacob's house is not only to put away their idols, they are to purify themselves. They are to consecrate themselves. They are to put aside all the things that are associated with their idolatry. We see here things like earrings and certain clothing that they must change out of. And they must prepare themselves to worship God. Now, because we live in the New Covenant, 
we are no longer bound by the ceremonial law. We don't have to do the things it requires as far as purification, all the washings, all the dietary things, things of the sort that we may come to worship God and continue to worship God. Those things are fulfilled in Christ and they no longer bind us. But something it does seem that we often lose in our day is that we don't feel the weight of approaching God in the splendor of his holiness in the way that we should. We are inclined to treat coming to worship as something just rote and repetitive. Well, we do this on Sunday morning because it's Sunday morning. There's no preparation. There's no gravity to it. And then when we come to worship, we are so often inclined not to worship God according to what he has required in his word, but according to our inventions and innovations. How many churches, for instance, have images of Christ or images of the saints in them, and they bow to them and do all of these acts of religious worship towards them? Well, the first and second commandment forbids all of those things. You can read the larger catechism, what it says about the first and second commandment and how they apply in the new covenant. And it is much more broad and far reaching than we often think about. Much of the church orients its worship not towards God's glory and what he requires in his word, but towards what the people want to see and hear. I saw a video the other day of a prominent megachurch where in their supposed worship service, they were singing a secular pop song while doing a Hindu or Buddhist dance. And somehow this was so they could celebrate Christmas. That's idolatry. They might as well set up the Baals or the Ashtaroths of the Old Testament, carve them out of wood and gold and bow down to them because it's just as much an affront to God who is to be worshipped according to his will and in the splendor of his holiness. He's not to be worshipped by images or innovations or imaginations. So, Jacob, in giving the command to his house to prepare to go worship God, he does acknowledge God's grace. He acknowledges that God was there for him in the day of distress and the day of trouble. There was a lot of sin and a lot of consequences of sin going around in his family. Again, his daughter was defiled, his sons blasphemed and murdered. A lot of people died. A city was destroyed. And yet God was still with Jacob in his house. His grace and favor were not conditional. God loves his people and is willing to save those who will turn from their sins and return and serve him. So Jacob's family heeds this command, and they travel to Bethel. Now God also helps them. He puts fear in the surrounding people so that despite the treachery at Shechem and Jacob's fear of reprisal, his family can travel safely. God remains sovereign even over his enemies. And Jacob comes to Bethel and builds the altar there. And he and his family there worship God anew and afresh. They return to him from their sin and rebellion. In the place where Jacob first met this God, now he returns and worships him again. It is a spatial illustration of a spiritual reality. 
God has been faithful to his people and he has been faithful to all his promises, even despite Jacob and his family's sorrows and struggles and sins. And he welcomes his people who are repentant to come back and worship him, even after some of the worst of sins imaginable. Now, after this, after this journey to Bethel and this return to worship, we see a side note here that this Deborah, who had been a nurse for Rebecca, Isaac's wife, died. Now, we had never heard of her before, yet here she died and her death is recorded with honor. Seems that her death is a sorrowful occasion for the people of God. But there is going to be more of this sorrow that we are going to see later. But then upon the return to Bethel, we see this covenant renewal, the reappearing of God to Jacob in the place he did before. When God appears, we see a restatement of something that he said that night that Jacob wrestled with him before the reunion with Esau. He will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. And then God proceeds to restate the covenantal blessings. We hear one here that goes all the way back to creation. Again, this command to be fruitful and multiply. This command that is also a blessing of creation. And then was stated again after the flood. And now it comes back around here. Jacob is to be fruitful and multiply and he will become a great nation. In fact, he is described as a company of nations. And there will be kings that will come from him. Now, if you want to hear more about the kings that come from Jacob, come tonight as we'll be looking at that as we look at the accounts of Jesus' birth from Matthew 1. But God here restates the promise to give Jacob and his descendants the land. And then we see here something else we've seen before. Just as the first time he was at Bethel, Jacob builds a pillar there. He pours a drink offering on it to remember this meeting with God, to remember that God came down to him there. So all of this tells us that though there is sin and sorrow and times of backsliding among God's people, God remains faithful to them. God remembers his promises. He keeps his promises. He pours out grace upon grace to his fallen and sinful people who repent, who turn from their sins, who put away their idols and return to him. This prepares us for what comes next. After the deliverance, we come to departures in verses 16 through 29 of chapter 35. We see in the rest of this chapter some miscellaneous notes, uh, some other developments in the house of Israel most of which are tragic and sorrowful and even sinful. It is no accident that they come even after this point of covenant renewal. Though we belong body and soul to God, this does not mean that we are perfected in this life. Nor does it mean that we do not suffer or eventually die. God helps us and blesses us, but this world is not our home, and we must hold loosely to this life and its blessings. So first, we see a bittersweet account after the family departs from Bethel. They're still sojourners and pilgrims. They can't stay in one place for too long. They have to follow the weather and the grass. They have to provide for themselves in a land that is not their own. So the account is sweet because Jacob is given another son by Rachel, and this will be his final son. 
But it is bitter because this will cost Rachel her life. She dies giving birth to this son. The different names that Jacob and the dying Rachel give to this son underscore the bitter sweetness of it all. Rachel calls him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob instead opts for Benjamin, son of my right hand. And Rachel died there near Ephrath, which later will be known as Bethlehem. Bethlehem will later be known as the city of David, but it's also associated with Rachel. The prophet Jeremiah prophesies that Rachel will weep for her children. This is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, after the birth of Jesus and Herod's murderous decree to kill all the young boys in the area. Even the tragic and sorrowful day in Genesis and the tragic and sorrowful events after Jesus' birth all point to the hope that is in Christ. Because although there is death and sorrow and sin, both that day, the death of Rachel, and as well as when Herod rages, death doesn't win. From a place in many ways associated with death and sorrow, this place that will be known as Bethlehem, the Savior of the world, will one day come. But again, you have to come tonight to hear more about that. The second departure we see in this section is not a departure from life, but rather a departure from all things good and upright and righteous. After Rachel's death, as Jacob journeys further, he learns of more gross sin among his sons. One of them, Reuben, lays with his concubine Bilhah, who had been the mother of some of Jacob's other sons. They have an incestuous relationship. Now this was evil, this was wickedness, this was something that was not to be done. Now as before with the incident in Shechem, we see that Jacob knows of this great evil in his household. We see that he hears about it. As far as we can tell here, he doesn't seem to do anything about it. He continues to rule his family with a certain passive and hands-off approach, even in the face of grave sin. Jacob is favored and blessed by God, but he is not perfected. He still battles his sins and weaknesses in this life. Now, there will be consequences later when Jacob gives out the blessings at the time of his death. His sons, who did these great evils, will receive some recompense then, but it will be too little and too late. Jacob's not doing much of anything, it seems, for now. Now, after this episode, we see a complete listing of Jacob's sons because all the ones that were to be born were now born. Now, note, that the, note the order that they're listed in. We see Leah's first. This would be contrary to Jacob's order of preference, for he favored Rachel and her children. But it was Leah who married Jacob first and bore children to him first. In fact, bore most of his children. Then we see Rachel's two sons, and then the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, the maidservants. And there are 12 sons in all. But then we get our third departure, that of Isaac. Now, we haven't heard anything from Isaac for a long time, not since Jacob left him when he was fleeing from Esau. But it seems he has been alive this whole time. 
We don't know exactly what he was up to, but it seems all these decades since Jacob departed, Isaac was still living. Now that is fascinating because at the time that Jacob had to flee from Esau, it was thought then that Isaac was about to die. All of the things that came was the need to get the house in order because Isaac was about to die. Isaac would live to be 180 years old. And until after everything with Jacob and Esau and Jacob's departure and return transpired. And we do see that before Isaac's death, he and Jacob reunite. Jacob comes to him at Mamre. That was a place where he lived. It was also a place where Abraham had lived and he had bought his burial field there. But Isaac does finally succumb to old age, 180 years. We see that Esau and Jacob again reunite to bury him. Though God is faithful to his promises, it does not mean that his people escape death in this life. Their ultimate hope is still in the world to come, and Isaac's death is yet another reminder of this. His death is not a tragic and premature death like Rachel's, but it is a death all the same of one of God's children, one of the house of the faithful. Now the death of Isaac also brings about the final recorded appearance of Esau in the narrative. And this brings us to our final point. After God's deliverance and the various departures in the family of faith, we come to a division, which is what we see in chapter 36. Now, although this is an entire chapter, I'm not going to spend too much time on it because almost all of it is just the list of names, these genealogies and records of Esau and the nation that will come from him and the nation and the land where they go. Now, we've seen this before in Genesis, but this is the last major time we see it where one of the descendants of the faithful is in fact not one of the faithful. And we see that he, is, he and all his family, all his descendants, are separated from the people of God. And we see here the genealogies. We see where they go. We see what nations they settle and established. But then after this, we don't hear from them again in this narrative. This is that separation between the city of God and the city of man. And we see that separation come here for Esau and his house. Though Esau was a son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham, twin brother of Jacob, he was not truly a part of God's people. His place and his portion were among the city of man. How often we have seen where the city of man separates. We saw it before with Cain, with Ham, with Ishmael. They go apart, they go away from the city of God, they still build nations and cultures and civilizations, but they do so apart from the presence and people of God. They are blessed and enriched in some ways by common grace, but impoverished in the most important of ways. They have no life, they have no salvation, and they have no worship of God among them. Now God is sovereign over this. It is according to his purposes and plans and election. In fact, Paul uses Jacob and Esau as a paradigm for election in Romans chapter 9. He talks about them as being representative of those who God chooses versus those whom God passes by. Now, in light of what we have seen, it's fairly obvious that it is not because Jacob is good and Esau is evil 
that Esau is the one broken off. Esau is evil in various ways, but clearly so is Jacob. God's salvation is by his sovereignty and grace. He gives it to Jacob in his house, but withholds it from Esau. But it's not because Jacob or his household is good. Nobody deserves salvation. Nobody deserves the presence and the blessings of God. The scandal here is not that God does not save Esau. Nobody deserves to be saved. No, the more scandalous thing, at least in our eyes, is that in light of all the pervasive sin and wickedness among all people, including Jacob's house, the scandal is that God saves anyone at all because we are all so undeserving and so ill-deserving of it. And yet, by his love and grace, God saves sinners. But there remains this accounting and this reckoning of those who were broken off, Esau and his descendants. So Esau has children by his multiple wives, and he and his family, they go away from Jacob because the land can't support all of them. They settle in Mount Seir, a land to the south and east of Canaan. This land will come to be known as the land and the nation of Edom. Then we see various lists of Esau's descendants. Now, some of these names do come up again in Scripture. For instance, Esau has a grandson named Teman. And Job's friend, in the book of Job, his friend Eliphaz was a Temanite. We see in verse 12, Amalek, the father of the Amalekites, they'll be another rival people to Israel. Then we also see a genealogical table of the people of Seir, those who were in the land before the Edomites came. And among those, in verse 28, we see Uz. Now you remember the book of Job. Job himself was from the land of Uz. So it seems that that was quite possibly a land in, around Mount Seir, part of what would be the land of Edom. So what this does tell us is it does seem that even among these pagans and even among these peoples that are largely broken off, there may in fact be some isolated worshipers of the true God, always not lost in that regard. But those would seem to be quite rare. In general, this is the city of man. This is those who will turn aside to false gods and false worship and die in their sins. Now again, they still develop culture and civilization. We see that there are chiefs, there are princes that come from Esau. But again, all of this comes apart from the knowledge and worship of God, with only maybe a few exceptions that I mentioned before. Now there does end up being much later, many centuries later, a bit of a fascinating turn in history and that after Israel is conquered, in fact, when it's occupied by the Greeks and the Romans, the Edomites are also occupied by the Greeks and Romans. And as a function of that, the Israelites and the Edomites essentially merge into one people again. They live together, they dwell together. Many of the, the Edomites, they're known as Edomians by then, they end up uh, being circumcised, worshiping in the temple. They 
sort of in a certain and limited way, become one people again. But that is many, many centuries later. And then after that, the Edomites basically disappear from history. So all of this to say, at this point here in Genesis 36, for then at least, Esau and his household's place in the city of man was sealed. The line of promise would be with Jacob. We're not going to hear about Esau and his family anymore. We're going to hear about Israel, and we're going to hear about what comes with them. Like most of the rest of the world, Esau's line would have to await the redemption that would later come in Christ. Of course, that redemption does come. Christ would one day emerge from the line of Israel, not just to save Israel, but to save the whole world. Israelites, Edomites, Americans, South Dakotans. The hope of Israel was clearly not in themselves, not in their works, not in their religious acts, for we continue to see in Genesis how weak and deficient and sinful their works are. And we see how they are frail and mortal and sick and dying. Their hope has to come from somewhere else. And their hope, though they only know it in types and shadows, was ultimately in Christ. And one day, in a similar place, near that place of sorrow where Rachel died, Christ came born of a virgin, born to a family of average blue-collar Galileans long after the glory of Israel and the glory of David seemed long behind. But Christ came to save sinners. He was born, he lived, he died to save his people from their sins. To those who would repent of their sins, and believe in him by faith, he offers forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. To those who have even turned aside into sin, he offers the opportunity that he did to Jacob to return, to repent, to worship him anew and afresh in the splendor of his holiness. So friends, today do not trust in yourselves. We've been reading about all these gross sins, but none of us are any better. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But trust in God, trust in Christ, worship him in the splendor of his holiness today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your great love and grace and mercy towards us and that we are fallen sinners. We deserve nothing but your wrath and condemnation. And yet you have seen it fit to come down to us, to love us and to help us. Most of all, we see this in how you sent your son, how he was born that night in Bethlehem. How he lived the perfect life we have never lived. He died the death that we deserved. And all of this, that we might be reconciled to you and forgiven of our sins. I pray that you would write this gospel truth on our hearts. That all of us would believe it. We pray that we would live lives in light of this hope and in light of this great help that we have. And that we would take the name of Jesus where it has not been heard.
We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.